You're listening to a podcast by Mission Field USA, a church planting initiative of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. For more information and resources, visit lcms.org slash church planting. have with us our special guest, uh, Reverend Dr. Lucas Woodford, who serves as the president for the Minnesota South District, um, also uh, has served in the parish. He's written his uh, dissertation for a demon program, and it will be the topic for our discussion today about the Great Commission and our confession. Uh, I'm Pastor Steve Shave, director of LCMS Church Planting, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Reverend Dr. Mark Larson. Hello, Dr. Larson. Uh, pleasure to be with you, Steve. Good to have you with us again. Mark, fun fact, did you know that the Minnesota South District is one of the locations for having a missionary for Mission Field USA? I did not know that. Yes. Is this new? That was Rebecca serving. Oh, the, yes. Ah, yeah. Yeah. No, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mandarin fluent yes working with international students so absolutely we're, we're she always, did a great job she did so we're always uh thankful for our partnership with the minnesota south district and especially uh for the discussion we're going to have today uh dr woodford welcome thanks great to be with you so in our discussion today just to, to get us started we're going to be looking a lot at the Great Commission and how uh, that applies to us in Mission Field USA. I had a chance to talk with Dr. Woodford a little bit uh, at the convention in Tampa, talked about my visit to Minneapolis. Uh, you know, it's really kind of a, a picture of what Mission Field USA looks like. It's metropolitan. Uh, you have a lot of diversity there. You have uh, quite a bit of the, the secular world surrounding you and other religions and that sort of thing. Urbanites moving back into the urban core. Uh, I think it's very representative, but it was uh, an interesting discussion too, just thinking in terms of what does that mean for us? How does that impact us? And what does that mean for the Great Commission? One of the things I think is a little bit interesting when you just throw out the phrase Great Commission for us who are kind of at the mission-minded level of uh, serving the church. It's pretty common nomenclature. But in a recent uh, study by Barna Group, this might surprise you guys, 51% of churchgoers don't know of the Great Commission. Does that surprise you, Mark? I, I just got to believe it's better among our people. <laughs> I, I want to believe that. I think it is. All right. I don't know. All right. Yeah, that, yeah, for, that shocked for, me. More, yeah. more than 50%, more than half of churchgoers, people that regularly go to church, churchgoers. are not hearing about the Great Commission or, hmm. or know of it. So I thought that was kind of a fascinating uh, talking point. But we're going to look at, uh, with Dr. Woodford, um, what are some of the tensions or even debate in terms of the Great Commission and the church? So Dr. Woodford, you want to get us started with that? Sure. Be happy to. As a uh young pastor coming out of uh, the seminary and being very zealous for wanting to um, serve the Lord and his people and being mindful of that great commission, I began studying it and reading all kinds of books about it and the emphasis about 
being in mission uh, in our contemporary culture. The Great Commission, since we know that phrase or we're using that phrase, it's a reference to some specific verses of Scripture, and that's from Matthew 28 and 18 to 20. And it's simply this, where the resurrected Jesus comes to the disciples and says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, so the text uh, is there for us. And as you noted, it might be the phrase Great Commission might be more or less familiar to some people, though the text likewise might be more or less. But it was one that I really set out to try and understand and uh, help guide me in the nature of my work as a pastor. This particularly came to the forefront for me when I went from my first congregation, which was in Wisconsin, rather large congregation, 3,300 members, about uh, almost 300 students at our Lutheran school, and I was associate pastor there, then was called as a senior pastor just outside of the Twin Cities, 40 miles west of St. Paul, and so just farther enough out to be a bedroom community to the Twin Cities in a, in a smaller town that was quickly becoming a bedroom community and uh, in the population uh, building, I should say, boom of the two th- early 2000s before the bubble burst, it was really increasing. And so I came there, congregation uh, was excited. I had followed a 23-year veteran that had been there and they had bought some new land or were about to buy new land, wanted to build new. They wanted to reach out in the community. Everything was it was growing in the community. And so the Great Commission was very much on the front of their mind. Uh, but as I got there, I found out that the hard reality of congregations and wanting a new pastor, of course, to come, uh, they presented themselves a little bit more organized, perhaps, and and put together regarding this idea and emphasis than really it was as a congregation. And there was a lot of growing pains that were going on, a lot of leadership challenges uh, and things to work through. And for me as a young pastor, uh, I I used to, or I I still say it this way, that uh, the Lord has a way of humbling those who think too much of themselves. And so I was this gung-ho young pastor thinking I could be a senior pastor and lead this church into fulfilling the Great Commission and without any challenges or, or troubles along the way. Well, uh, we know how that works, and Satan loves to throw all kinds of things into it. And so amid all the challenges that were going on, and I articulate them a little bit more in the, uh, the, the book that came as a result of my dissertation work on the Great Commission, Great Confusion, or Great Confession, Mission of the Holy Christian Church, I detail them a little bit more. But the point for our discussion is how the Great Commission, as the phrase and the text, really had become central to the core of talk about mission in the North American church. And so I would uh, have lots of conversations with guys and read lots of books where things and questions would go like this in the conversation. They'd say, are you a Great Commission congregation? Or, or they'd say, do you care about the lost? Or are you a Great Commission pastor? Do you focus on the unchurched? Or do you have a school, in my case, that where I went, uh, the congregation was about 900, and we had 150 students at our K-8 to school, that say, are you a Great Commission school? Do you have a Great Commission strategic plan? Do you have missional leaders, missional events, missional DNA in your congregation, or are you fulfilling the Great Commission? And so I needed to 
understand more what does that really mean and what are people getting at. Um, of course, then we have the, the uh, a pushback against that idea of uh, the nature of, you know, what what does that mean? And I'm I'm a confessional pastor, or I'm a, a liturgical pastor, or I care about doctrine, or or I'm more orthodox than I worry about those other things. So then then I began seeing we we had these two divisions that were going on that were creating allegiances uh, and alliances of us versus them. And people saying, which side are you on or who do you support? Or we've got the Lord on our side as if somehow the Lord could be bent to such allegiances. So my take on that then as this long, long introduction to this is I didn't think it was quite right to pit the two against each other. Uh, must mission and doctrine be done to the exclusion of the other? My take was that all ministry, all mission, all doctrine, and all outreach happen within the Holy Christian Church, which is made up of real confessing and believing people living real lives in the midst of a real culture filled with real sins, real pain, and real joy. So how do we navigate that and make sense of that? So I was starting my doctoral work at that time, and so that launched me into a deep uh, dive into exploring this Great Commission, not only the text, but of course the phrase itself, how was it used um, within the history of the church, and are these questions that the greater church was asking of each other, are they the right questions to be asking, and is there a better way of coming alongside of one another rather than pitting each other in different camps? All right, fair enough, and this is an important topic because we just came out of Synod Convention, and the new emphasis for the next three years is making disciples for life. And that's really what this Great Commission topic is about. So it's making disciples of all nations uh, through God's word and sacraments. We've talked about that previously on our podcast about the identity of mission um, being the seven factors that Luther points out. And it's basically using word and sacrament to make disciples. It's for life and that we want to retain uh, disciples uh, and lifelong catechesis and, and that sort of thing. But uh, ultimately, in, in our discussion, what we're talking about is how do we evangelize the lost? How do we plant new churches that will be the most effective means of reaching uh, those outside of the church? So it is, it's a very timely conversation to talk about making disciples, since that will be a, a major emphasis for us uh, to make disciples for life. So with that said, um, Dr. Woodford, what would you say about the, the Great Commission? Is the Great Commission uh, the mission of the church? Yeah, that, that's the, the crux of what I try to get at in my book and, I, uh, uh, and my research on that. And recognizing these two poles that often happen, I think we arbitrarily put it into a category of a phrase that we've predetermined what it should mean and without uh, really taking a look at the text itself. And so I think uh, for Lutherans, when we're, we have this wonderful theology that has at its core, of course, the ju justification of the sinner, but getting that message right and then getting that message out that we want to tell uh, unbelievers about it. And so the, the core of the church's mission, I think, it might be a summary phrase to use the Great Commission, but I think that it's been misused over the years 
that the Great Commission as some kind of mission statement for the church, where it has uh, taken away from the nature of the, the free, clear gift of the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and turned that into a secondary status where the nature of the Great Commission, the emphasis that people sometimes take is the go. And so there, they, uh, you pointed out the so, so important that the discipleship, we are going to make disciples, but the going has been for a decade. And I explore this in a couple different movements of, of more recent 50 year movements of the church, the nature of, uh, where conversion, simple conversion becomes the impetus for the going, and then the discipling has been left on the side. And then uh, the research that has been gathered over the last 30 years has demonstrated the decline in discipleship because there is such an emphasis only on initially an initial conversion and then moving on from there. So the idea which Lutherans are uh, not comfortable with, but the idea of, well, I've got someone to make a decision for Jesus. Now they decided, now I need to go on because now they're saved and now I need to go on and find someone else. Well, for us, of course, that's not the nature of discipleship. Discipleship is the ongoing life of faith. So uh, when I studied this the nature of Great Commission, to me, uh, my father-in-law is a, uh, an eye doctor, and so I was getting my eyes checked one time and got into a conversation on something called an astigmatism. I have a slight astigmatism in my eye. And uh, he says astigmatism was the optical defect where my vision blurs because my eye can't bring an object into sharp focus uh, image on my retina. Now, this happens because it's either an irregular curvature of your cornea or the lens of your eye. And now, why is that important for this? Well, it, during my studies, it was the thought that the, the church, in some ways, had developed a sort of astigmatism as a result of using the Great Commission in an overemphasized way. And it was getting uh, used in, in a way of, again, pitting people against each other, which were creating then within our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, a couple of fears that... Uh, I would identify or look at first, there was the, the fear on one hand that our theology just doesn't seem to be practical by some, that it wouldn't work. Uh, and so that was evoking some panic regarding the death of the church. And everything is all of a sudden a super urgent need that we have to get out and, and find something that will work uh, at the same time, then wondering, well, does our theology really work? But then the other fear is that actually getting out there and desperately and passionately love people, unbelievers and believers alike, even if they don't understand our theology, there was a fear of some that didn't want to do that because they are so concerned perhaps on orthodoxy and, and, and right belief alone. So my attempt was to take a look at this astigmatism to try and bring some, um, some perhaps corrective for to find some lenses uh, for this, this corrective, if you will. Um, and part of the uh, impetus that had been that was observing the uh, missional, if you will, even that word itself is a more recent trend of a word, missional movements of the church that were really trying to stress uh, the nature of the Great Commission. But what was fascinating by it was that I was, as I was discovering and digging into this, there were others in the, the if you will, sort of the, the church growth or the uh, the nature of the uh, other movements coming after that, uh, coming after that with 
the, the different uh, movements in the church, the missional movements that were starting to explore things like a mission creep. Um, Michael Horton called it that, where, or Gordon McDonald called it missionalism. And that was the idea where being on mission and the methods of the mission take priority over the content of the mission. And that was fascinating to see what, how that was taking an impact upon the organizational nature of the church and how it was reshaping the nature of a church. They were so intent on uh, the, the mission, meaning uh, being on mission, that the content of it was falling to the wayside. So that's where I began to say, uh, I'm not sure how helpful it is for the church to say, well, the Great Commission is it. That's the defining sole purpose, because when we use the phrase, there's a lot of things that are assumed by that phrase. And so then I got into a deeper studying of taking a look at the actual text itself, but happy to go wherever you'd like to explore that. Yeah, so I think it is fair to say that it's not an either-or. I think there is tension between mission and doctrine. I think there's also tension between getting the message out and getting the message right. But if we're not getting the message out, uh, I don't think that's being faithful uh, either to what Jesus is telling us about making disciples. Mark, you had a point? Yeah, I, I really like the astigmatism uh, illustration. My eye doctor explained this astigmatism as being the eye doesn't have the same focus horizontally as vertically. So it's got one aspect. So like with astigmatism, if a congregation has that in terms of mission, they could get one part right, but the other part's wrong. And then it's still out of focus. So um, I don't know if I'm understanding astigmatism quite right, but I thought that that's really an apt uh, description. So I, I like that. Theological of you though, the vertical plane yeah. and the horizontal plane. And well, yeah. Sure, yeah. yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to be biological, but you know. It's, <laughs> it's also theological. <laughs> that's good. Very theological. Oh, that's good. Well, um, let's talk a little bit more then about some of the, what you refer to, uh, Dr. Woodford, as the, the hermeneutical considerations, especially as it relates to our Lutheran confessions. What, what can we uh, glean in terms of those types of considerations? Sure. Well, the important thing of when we talk about hermeneutical considerations, of course, is examining the text in the context where it appears. And this will be a, a larger uh, part of the conversation later on when I talk about uh, in, in a, another session on common sense contextualization, uh, where you're taking stock of the context of a culture. But in this case, we're taking a look at the context of the particular passages that Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and taking a look at the importance of understanding the text against the background of the entire gospel that it's written in, along with the constraints of the community to which the author belonged. Because otherwise, what can happen is we, we pull the text out of Scripture, and we sort of give it a life of its own. Now, what's interesting is that the, the renowned South African missiologist David Bosch, in his book, Transforming Mission, has something interesting to say, a, a number of things to say, really, about the nature of the Great Commission, that those verses itself, as well as the phrase, that uh, the Church, I think, does well to be mindful of, even as we utilize it to help shape what the mission of the Church is. But listen to what he says in, in his book. He says, it's inadmissible to lift these words out of Matthew's gospel, as it were, allow them a life of their own and understand them without any reference 
to the context in which they first appeared. Now, where this happens, the Great Commission is easily degraded to a mere slogan or used as a pretext for what we in advance decided perhaps unconsciously it should mean. Now, when I read that first time, it was quite uh, stark for me to say, oh, this is what I've been hearing a lot, Great Commission, Great Commission, all around. Now, that doesn't take away from the wonderful things that the actual verses say, but it does give light to how the organizational nature of the church perhaps was not using the text or the phrase itself in, in the greater context of where it fall within the Gospel of Matthew. So that's where then, of course, we want to explore the, the hermeneutical considerations where as a, a seminary student and then any good exegete studying along the way, where you learn that uh, as a translator, must be mindful of Matthew's first century community, certainly when you're looking at the text, uh, the Greek text in the original. And so the verses do need, at least initially, to be considered uh, as it was understood by the first readers, with all the fullness that uh, they encompassed. But uh, recognizing that present-day pastors then, as well as missionaries and theologians, they, they do well to keep these uh, contexts in mind. One of the particular ones is our own Jeffrey Gibbs in his, his commentary on, or what he's written about uh, this in, in his commentary on Matthew. Uh, he says it's important that, to recognize that Matthew extended the scriptures of Israel by authoritatively narrating how the end time reign of God had broken into the world through the historical deeds and the words of Jesus of Nazareth, God's son and God's Christ. In other words, here, the nature of the whole of Matthew's gospel account had something profound to say in terms of who Jesus was and what God had done through him, and not just a few words or a few verses, but in a complete picture and a total narrative. So that whole prolific message of salvation was to be for all nations, and certainly that's what these verses of the Great Commission have. But I think it's important for us to be mindful that we don't reduce them just to one simple aspect, and oftentimes when it's reduced with that kind of uh, astigmatism in mind, we look at it only as a command, meaning it's only a, uh, the law, and we miss the gift nature that's also in there, the fullness of the gospel. And I found a little bit of irony when I was doing all the study that Protestants have the name Protestant because they were protesting against what was formerly perceived to be getting the gospel wrong about making it all about law, things that you have to do. Uh, but here we had some tendencies of going down that same route again of trying to make the gospel into a law that had to be done rather than rejoicing in the finished work of Christ. Now, again, that's not negating the very important and urgent nature of us needing to get the message out, but it is bringing balance to making sure we're getting the message right. Right, that that does make sense. I mean, these are our command, uh, you know, that we hear Jesus saying, do these things. You are to baptize, you are to teach, you are to love and care for your neighbor. But the the motivation for us as Christians, uh, as you said, of course, is very gospel-centric, uh, that it is a gift for us to, to do these things. So what would you also... Uh, speak in terms of, just from our own confession, the, the Lutheran Confession of Faith, how does that equate with the Great Commission? Yeah, so th that's where I, I dug in a little bit, too. As a, a confessional Lutheran, I wanted to look at where did the, this Great Commission, particularly the verses themselves, function within 
the, the confessors uh, looking at when they were going through all the Reformation? Well, what we see is that they are certainly present within uh, our Book of Concord and the, the confessions they're in, but not, it's not referenced uh, as a great commission anywhere in the Lutheran confessions. In other words, it, it doesn't have a be used as a mandating text with the phrase great commission about it. To be sure, uh, it is referenced. So, for example, it's in the Apology of Augsburg Confession, uh, Article uh, 9 on Baptism, uh, Paragraph uh, 2. Looking at that, it does give reference to it, to baptize. It's certainly, of course, in the small catechism on baptism, again, the large catechism on baptism. Uh, It does also... Uh, have reference in the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope when it's discussing the nature of authority. Uh, so that's, we're going back to where Jesus has. Then it's, of course, also in the formula of Concord, the epitome article eight concerning the person of Christ and the solid declaration, article seven on the, the Holy Supper and article eight, the person work of Christ. Now, all are dealing with that authority. Uh, authority aspect that Jesus talks about, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So putting it simply, then, the Lutheran confessions uh, take the scriptures as a whole. And so the Great Commission does not separately or formally have a part of defining the work and mission of the church apart from the greater context of the scriptures in which it occurs. So at a minimum, at least in my mind, then it it was there, uh, again, a reason for us to, to pause and consider how we're using the Great Commission, both the phrase Great Commission, as well as the actual text itself, uh, and taking a look at how is that uh, developing and leading the North American Church's mission forward in our contemporary times. Yeah, and I think even Luther himself has been criticized uh, that he wasn't concerned with mission. He He was concerned with reforming the confession of faith. He wasn't as interested in reaching the lost. And one of our guests we've had on before, Detlef Schultz, wrote an entire book with just quotations of Luther telling the church to be about uh, reaching out to the lost and caring for those in need. And I think it is uh, something that he speaks to very highly in terms of in our everyday vocations that we, you know, that's why one of the purposes God has given uh, for us to be here on this earth in our vocations is to reach the lost and to tell the good news. Mark, do you have anything? Absolutely. Well, yeah, a, a question. You know, back this probably fits in with Lutheran confessions, but also with the uh, uh, exegesis of the text is what would you enumerate to be the gifts of the gospel in these verses? Oh, are you talking to me? Yeah. Right. Sorry. So, you what would be the the gospel uh, within there? It right. would be the. Uh, I am with you always, the mm-hmm. gift of nature that, that Jesus says it's the promise so that he gives us there. And so certainly he's telling us uh, things to be done, going and baptizing. But of course, in the baptizing, that's the delivery of, of the gifts and teaching. We need to do those things. So it's the going, the baptizing, the teaching. Um, those are all things we certainly should do. But making sure that we have the nature of the gift nature, I am with you always, Mm-hmm. Yes. That we have that confidence to carry us forward while we're going about doing the the work that Jesus has given us to do. Yeah, very good, very good. Yeah, and, I, and it goes along with the authority that you know we that the authority belongs to Christ through the church, and then um, 
that he's with us to accomplish that. Right. Well, yeah, and I, I really like that they pick up on that because it's the the exousia, the Greek word there. So it's the authority, and then therefore the authorization. Here's the authorization for you guys to go do this, and now make sure you've got it right. Now get it out there and make sure you're doing this. I think what tends to happen is some guys can get lost on making sure it's only right. Or, you know, right. falling off, Luther always said there's two sides you can fall off a horse. We fall off one side or the other side here. And Lutherans, I think, are, are inherently have a, a great approach to because there's always to be that tension uh, that we're to have there and that balance that we keep it in front of us moving forward. Exactly. Yeah. The drunken peasant. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's this is certainly scripture that we're speaking to. But on the other hand, when you think of the phraseology, like Great Commission, you know, just like with rapture, I mean, there has been some more modern day usage of that, I, I guess, and, and the emphasis on that and using particular phrasing. What do you think, Dr. Woodford, in terms of this kind of contemporary use of Great Commission then? Yeah, that was part of things I wanted to explore. Then I got into the, the where did the phrase come from or when did it really start being utilized? Because I had taken a look at uh, our own Lutheran confessions back 500 years, how that function. I even took a look at the early church uh, and then the greater text of Scripture itself. And uh, again, noting with uh, with David Bosch that the Great Commission didn't function anywhere in the New Testament as a mandating text again, as the phrase Great Commission. So I wanted to explore in more contemporary times, how might this have come about and where did it come from? Well, interesting uh, for me was that uh, 18th century, I think the best I've found so far is the Great Commission was first considered as a mandating text by a Baptist missionary named William Carey. Wonderful man who had this great zeal for wanting to reach out to the lost, but he was dealing with, if I'm remembering right, uh, his church at the time had said, well, the Great Commission had already been fulfilled, and therefore there wasn't the need to send out missionaries. And so Kerry then wanting to balance how the horse, they'd fallen off the horse on one side, brought the emphasis uh, and this deep conviction for world missions. So he, he wrote in 1792 this uh, inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of heathens a really catchy bestseller book title, <laughs> um, but it was nonetheless, uh, the, the logic that Kerry had was that if the commission to make disciples of all nations were restricted to the apostles, then the command to baptize and the promise of Christ's abiding presence should be also subject to that limitation. So that was his logic. And so, of course, Kerry's logic and argument uh, won. And so at that point, then using the Great Commission, the, uh, the Protestant missionary enterprise was launched out from Europe to North America. And then from there, uh, it has been brought into contemporary times and contemporary uses um, multiple ways. And for our more modern time, any number of uh, particular evangelical uh, books that would talk about mission, there's always the presence of that Great Commission text there. But when I began exploring now, we've got a couple decades, three decades or so of, of uh, opportunity to reflect back on this emphasis in our modern times of how churches have reorganized themselves to be a Great Commission church. I was able to take a look at how has that, what kind of fruit may have been produced from that, and where have things been going from that. So 
uh, have more to say on that if you want, but I don't want to keep taking up all the all the time here. Oh no, absolutely. Uh, we'd love to hear kind of the the findings of what else has been seen out there in terms of contemporary uh, usage of Great Commission. So please. Oh sure. Well, there are. Um, I certainly will say there are some very thoughtful um, elements of use out there. Um, and give some great depth to, to thinking that through. Um, Tim Keller has some some thoughtful things to say, and Ed Stetzer as well. Neither of them, are, of course, are Lutheran tradition. They have some thoughtful things to say. I may not agree with them entirely on it, um, but uh, along with it, a host of other uh, authors and church leaders would be putting forward the nature of this Great Commission and the importance of it. So two of the big ones perhaps might be um, the Saddleback uh, Church with Rick Warren and then Bill Hybels uh, as well of looking at uh, having the Great Commission and often the Great Commandment as the defining features of their large megachurch congregations. And so looking at those two, I began then trying to follow what's been written about it and, and looking at it. Interestingly enough, um, there was a study, uh, a number of dissertations have been written on Willow Creek itself of um, how they were doing their seeker services and how they were having this growth. And one very telling book was written about it by Gregory Pritchard, who had uh, wanted to explore their way of doing church, which was based on the Great Commission, and using his dissertation that, of course, also was then turned into this book that was titled Willow Creek Seeker Services, Evaluating a New Way of Doing Church. Uh, and it was received by some as the definitive study of the most influential church in North America. He divided it into two simple parts, understanding the Willow Creek way of doing church, and uh, the second one, evaluating the Willow Creek way of doing church. So, uh, curiously, when he looked at how they were doing the churches, one of his first evaluations of Willow Creek was their use of marketing in an effort to try and utilize the, the emphasis for the Great Commission and, and be attractive to others to get people to come in. Um, he said, marketing brings modern tools of communication that are basic elements of America uh, and increasingly in the world culture, of course, where Creekers, he would call them, have borrowed these methods in an effort to reach their unchurched friends and family. Uh, but what he found was, as they seek to market the gospel, the gospel itself has been distorted. Now, this was, uh, it hit kind of hard uh, on Willow Creek, because when that came out, um, they then did a self-internal study of looking at this because of, he had uh, access to them for over a year going to their services, in their meetings and understanding, and then gave the, the uh, assessment, the, the qualitative and quantitative data that he had did the research on, that one of his uh, stark, uh, with that one as well as one of his stark realizations was that he said, ironically, while Hybels was evangelizing those in the world towards Christianity, Hybels was also evangelizing Christians toward the world. He said, as the unchurched Harry's and Mary's in the audiences move closer to Christianity, the Christians in the audience are often becoming more psychological and worldly. So this kind of shocked them when this came forward. So they did their own internal assessment uh, and uh, did a, a book they called uh, Reveal 
of why they went then away from the seeker-oriented services and the attractional model to try to go back to the discipling model because they realized that uh, the shallowness of trying to use just the, the point of the Great Commission itself as a mantra and then combine it with an attractional feature that they weren't creating disciples. Now, that's just one example, but there was lots of other mounting evidence out there that was going on. Mike Breen uh, posted an article on the Verge Network at at the time, quite a significant article, Why the Missional Movement Will Fail, which was a movement also embracing the uh, Great Commission. But his point was simply that they had lost the discipleship engine. So it was the, the missional movement based on the Great Commission was a, an, a car without an engine because the, what was missing was the discipleship, uh, discipleship piece where the, the North American church had become so obsessed with getting the message out that they were failing to get the message right. And again, this was the internal, uh, internal critiques. Uh, same thing, uh, Sky Jethnight. Uh, was very candid as well. He's he's wrote an article and then he wrote a number of books after that as well, giving an, an honest and I think fair critique. But this particular article, he said, has the mission become our idol, mm. where he was uh, kind of uh, just straight to the point and said many church leaders unknowingly replace the transcendent vitality of a life with God for the ego satisfaction they derive from a life for God. And I, I found, uh, found that to be uh, quite insightful as well. Again, this isn't taking away, in my opinion, from the importance of the text itself, nor from Jesus' command, but it is giving us pause to say, how has the astigmatism that is affecting the church caused some missteps along the way that may have been zealous and wanting to get this message out to unbelievers, but perhaps in a way that has now generated an astigmatism. Maybe one of the most startling ones for me was then what Christian Smith had uh, put out in his book, Soul Searching, and it was based on youth at that time, uh, which is now 10 years or so uh, uh, ago. And the youth are always a good indicator, and we want to be mindful of that. In fact, uh, as a district president now, I'm working with lots of different groups on youth. Had in our, our, our Romo speaking, we have huge influx of immigrants in the Twin Cities, and was working with them, the second generation of these immigrants and their youth, uh, wanting to make sure they're connected to the church, dealing with the same things, but in a, a multicultural, multi-ethnic way. But but it is significant to still keep in mind what Smith observed uh, in his book about what the effort uh, to be a uh, missional or attractional or Great Commission uh, church to have created within the church. And he identified particularly in the youth was this idea of what he would call moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, that's the idea where People believe God exists, but only to help them when they're in need, and in the end, where good people go to heaven when they die. That was the what he had observed based on his uh, qualitative studies with youth and among churches, the message that they were getting from this idea of church, where it was creating people basically, um, one more uh, current or modern book that really takes this on is a from an insider himself, Jared Wilson, where he wrote the book uh, 2019, just released the Gospel Driven Church, 
that says uniting church growth dreams with the metrics of grace, where he's aiming to give a corrective as well to this this attractional model uh, that uh, one of his insightful diagnosis is that uh, when we look at uh, a congregation or a church that tries to look at the values of the culture and the people and use those as the point and then try and teach life lessons from those, what we end up actually creating, and this is what uh, the Willow Creek study had also revealed, is simply moral unbelievers. In other words, he said, you win people to biblical principles, but fail to win them to the biblical Christ. And so, again, that's rather insightful of how we go about seeing the organizational nature of the church and how we shape that going forward. Because, of course, again, we want, as with our Lord does, we want all people to come to the knowledge of Christ uh, and salvation and and, uh, have uh, life and forgiveness in him. Uh, and so that's that balance, again, of, of keeping uh, the, the mission and our theology in, in good balance, getting the mission, uh, the message right, and getting the message out uh, that need to be kept in balance. And so that's where I come back to it again, uh, the Great Commission itself, seeing it as a total gift. It's a creative uh, gift, the Great Commission, and recognizing it, it's not simply a, a a commission in the ordinary sense of the word, but a creative statement, very much like the manner of Genesis 1-3, where God says, let there be light, where God's word in its entirety is the power and force behind the work being done, and Christ's authority and abiding presence leads us forward. So it keeps that that balance in front of us, and then that fervor and that, that joy that we want to make sure we give a voice to the lost— and within the church and continue to keep moving forward. So again, that balance of not tempting to, uh, tending to fall off one side or the other. Yeah, fair enough. I think as you've used the analogy of glasses and focus, obviously if we lose our focus on repentance and forgiveness, that's, that's what Jesus has said before he ascends into heaven that we are to preach. And we don't want to lose sight of the cross being the focal point. And I do believe as you're speaking about focus too, uh, that's what separates us as the Christian church is that our focus is not on what we do for God uh, that so many other uh, religions uh, put their focus on, but our, our focus is on what God has done for us in Christ on the cross for our salvation, and we don't want to lose that focus. And I think there is a temptation for all of us who have a great a sense of urgency to reach the lost. We realize that there are millions upon millions of people just here in the United States of America who are lost. They are outside of the church. They are the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, we understand our doctrine of election uh, perfectly well, but at the same time, we concern ourselves with um, how will they know if they've not heard. And I think that might be where the temptation comes in to focus on using the law to motivate people through uh, guilt and other means. The, you know, why aren't you about the Great Commission uh, in your vocations? And that can be uh, a great temptation uh, for us to kind of lose focus on what God has done for us and to really, in our sense of urgency, kind of misuse uh, law motivation to just get more people doing more stuff. 
just yoke that, uh, you know, burden on them just a little bit more to get a little bit out because, you know, you think about Egypt, you know, they got, they had more work done, you know, <laughs> crack the whip. Um, but we're, right. we're trying to right. get them out of that bondage. Right. Yeah. The, the nature the the fullness of the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's, it's not good works. It's not good counsel, but good news. And that good news is the full and free, clear message that we live under that, that message of, of Christ that says, it is finished. Uh, but we live in a world at the same time that always is saying, do more, be better, try harder. And that tendency to always feel like you have to do. Um, certainly that's good in, in the aspect of going about an organization and work like the Holy Christian Church. But we want to make sure the full, free, clear message of the gospel that uh, Christ says it is finished. In other words, it's done. That is the gospel. And of course, then his law, which is also equally important, that is the the do that goes forward. But the power to allow us to do anything, of course, comes from the gospel itself. It's the emphasis that I, I look at uh, for the remedy for this astigmatism, looking through the lens from our Lutheran theology, um, in the the next session, I'll I'll talk more about that, about that third article of the Apostles' Creed that says, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, to come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. And it's that gospel power, that good news, that frees us and leads us forward in the life of faith and in the mission of the Holy Christian Church. Excellent. Mark, do you have any last thoughts about, you know, keep keeping the urgency of the Great Commission, but at the same time, uh, our, our motivation? Yeah, it's a classic law and gospel uh, <laughs> dichotomy that we need to sort out. And Luther said only the most learned doctors in the church never get it right, you know. So this is just an example of that, very right. definitely. is. Right. You know that we do something. Uh, Christ does expect us to do something. That's the law. Right. But he gives us the power. He gives us the presence. And I, I really liked uh, your comment that, uh, in a sense, the Matthew 18 is a creative statement in the sense that God spoke the word in Genesis and created everything. Um, you know, uh, Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth. He couldn't do that because he was dead. <laughs> but... By the power of that word itself, Lazarus was alive and responded. So I, it, you know, just kind of, I kind of connected that in my mind with the, uh, uh, with the Matthew twenty-eight passage too. Yeah, and I th- certainly think that fits with to live in Christ. And you know, when we say people should come to church, you know, mm-hmm. as a Christian and knowing what I receive in the divine service, I can do no other. But you know, wild horses couldn't drag me from. Uh, coming in the divine service, and same thing with wanting to tell others this good news. That's that's what the gospel does. Right. I can new, do no other uh, when when somebody uh, obviously is uh, in unbelief than to tell them this good news of Absolutely. of Jesus Christ. So um, I can't help but speak. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. does that that sound about right, Doctor Woodford? Yep, you bet. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. So. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Woodford, for a great conversation about the Great Commission and helping us to understand uh, both why Christ has called us to do that, but also what motivates us. Again, uh, it's, it's a very important 
uh, aspect of the life of the church, especially for us, even in the LCMS, as we go about the next three years with an emphasis put on making disciples. So we really appreciate your time and helping us to um, dissect and take a really good look at the Great Commission and its important for us in the life of the church. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yep. LCMS Disaster Response gathers once a year to learn best practices on how to do mercy and respond to natural disasters. We're inviting you to get involved in the conversation. Join us at Concordia Seminary St. Louis from October 2nd through the 4th to hear from pastors, experienced disaster responders, and disaster victims as they share their wisdom and experience from the field. Registration, including meals, is just $50, but seats are limited. For more information, go to lcms.org disaster. That's lcms.org disaster. Hello and welcome to our Mission Field USA listeners to our next segment of the Mission Field USA podcast. We are very excited to kind of pick up on a previous discussion that we had. Uh, We have with us again today Reverend Dr. Lucas Woodford, uh, who is the district president for the Minnesota South District. And in our last conversation, uh, we spoke quite a bit about the Great Commission and how it relates to us in the church today. Um, excited to have another conversation focusing in on what is the mission and the ministry of the church. Uh, with me today, I'm uh, Reverend Dr. Steve Shave, Director of LCMS Church Planting, is my co-host, the Reverend Dr. Mark Larson. Hello, Mark. Hello, Steve. It's great to be with you again today. Welcome back. And also, welcome to our special guest, Dr. Woodford. Thanks for having me again. Great to be with you. Awesome. So today, we're going to take a look at uh, some introductory, you know, we've, we've spoken about the need to make disciples, how the church makes disciples, what motivates us and our vocations uh, to be about uh, making disciples as the church. Let's look a little bit at uh, what what would you say, Dr. Woodford, is the mission of the Holy Christian Church on Earth? That is the question that uh, preoccupied me when I was a young pastor trying to take a look at how do I help lead my congregation? I, I had begun my ministry at a very large congregation, 3,300 members, uh, 300 uh, Uh, students at our school. Uh, It was a large, active, growing congregation. It seemed to be like the place to be, uh, always uh, uh, fast-paced. But uh, then I received a call to a little bit smaller congregation, about uh, 900 or so, and a school about 150. And they were engaged in the process of wanting to purchase new land, build a new building, um, but they didn't have the funds for it, and they weren't quite sure what exactly was the mission that they wanted right there. And so then that prompted me 
uh, to explore in my own studies I was uh, going through at the time of what is the mission of the church? Uh, and the phrase of get the message right, and that message certainly is of the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of souls, but then also to get the message out and keeping that balance. Uh, but within the church, as a young pastor, I was trying to navigate all the voices that were speaking out there and figure out where was I to be leading the congregation? What was to be the core of it? And as a Lutheran, of course, we certainly have specific marks of the church uh, where the Word of God is taught in its truth and purity and the sacraments are administered rightly. Uh, but at the same time, there are other voices out there recognizing our North American culture of how do we do this? What are we to be doing out there? And so, uh, as I mentioned at our other conversation, we had uh, divisions going on in our own church that look at things becoming confessional or missional, and really those are just the beginning of different labels, and labels sometimes are not very helpful because uh, they pit us into categories of us and them, and it's not our church, it's the Lord's church, and we need to be mindful of that. But then you've got other labels like orthodox or authentic, emerging or emergent, uh, how do we do church, multiplication, contextualization, indoctrination, do we have seeker services, church growth or church planter? Where do we have it? In a, in a house church, a traditional church, maybe an online church? Uh, of course, then we've got a, a later adaptation now, more recently in the last uh, eight years or so, the idea of what's something called uh, metro spirituality or, or ancient future church or being a, a sacramental entrepreneur. Um, all different labels that can sometimes vie for our attention as what should the mission of the church be? Well, my take in the midst of it all, I think, is uh, as a Lutheran, we have this profound confession of faith that can lead us forward, that keeps the gospel at the center and recognizes where the power for the mission of the church comes from, namely the gospel, and leads us forward then as a church who disciples its people, but then goes out into the world uh, in the midst of our vocations to serve the Lord in those vocations, but to intentionally share the gospel in that place. So uh, the, the core of my thinking on the mission of the uh, Holy Christian Church comes around that phrase of, I cannot by my own reason or strength, uh, which comes from the, the third article of the Apostles' Creed. In our last conversation, I had talked about uh, an astigmatism, where you can't rightly focus on an object, um, and that was happening with this emphasis on the overemphasis on the Great Commission and an in, incomplete emphasis uh, on the fuller text that would go with it. And as a corrective for that astigmatism, I'm suggesting that uh, the, the Church's historic confession of faith that comes in something like the Apostles' Creed, particularly that third article of the Apostles' Creed, where it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting, uh, this has a, a profound uh, value for us to lead us forward. And, and despite those that sometimes would say, well, it, it's not about creeds, but deeds, or that whole different phase of the Church, uh, I don't think we need to be shy away from the, the language of theology or doctrine as terms themselves, uh, because the reality of our doctrines 
uh, things like creation, incarnation, trinity, atonement, uh, all those things are not theoretical abstractions, uh, namely just things primarily to be thought about, but they are meaningful patterns, I think, that provide uh, orientation for everyday existence and then are hence things primarily to be lived. And that's where Luther, I think, says doctrine is life. And so the corrective lens for that, or to help guide the church in her mission, I think is the summaries that we have of our scripture, of what it teaches, and it's a narrative, it's a drama that plays out. And so the third article that says, I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Christian Church, communion of saints, all that, uh, it's a profound framework for us to take a look at uh, and frame what the mission of the church is. Uh, if you'll indulge me just for a moment, one of the things I would uh, often do when I when I taught on the creeds, either to my confirmation class or even to Bible class and, and occasionally in sermons, I would I would ask people on the nature of the Trinity. I, I would say, if it were possible, which it is not, so I'll make sure, which it is not possible, but if it were possible, who might be the most important person of the Holy Trinity? And certainly we can go about and say, give all the reasons why, who might be the most important, God the Father and Christ, without either of them, of course, we could never have salvation. Uh, But my contention is always, if it were possible, which it's not, but if it were possible, I would say it's the Holy Spirit, because uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who grants us faith. And without the Holy Spirit, of course, then we could never know about the the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the price he paid, the atonement he made for us, uh, who showed us the love of the Heavenly Father. And so this uh, article, this third article, has this wonderful narrative that goes with it that reminds us, of course, of where our faith comes from, but also gives us uh, directive for the mission of the Holy Christian Church. And so for those that have remember it from when they were catechized, the, the meaning of the third article of the Creed, if it's all right by you, I'll just uh, quickly go through it just to remind people. It says, uh, uh, what does this mean? It says, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith, In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. And in this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. And on the last day, he will raise me in all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. I contend right there in that that short little summary of what the scriptures teach that this wonderful drama of our doctrine is played out there, and it gives us uh, an emphasis for the mission of the Holy Christian Church that includes uh, the calling of those who do not have faith. And how do we call it? It's through the gospel. The Holy Spirit works that way. It's the gathering of them. And then it's the enlightening, and then it's the sanctified within the whole Christian Church. So a long explanation of answering your, your, your first question there, but I think that is a, a good summary of what the mission of the Holy Christian Church is, looking at it in a simple catechetical way uh, right out of Luther's small catechism. Fair enough. So, Dr. Woodford, if the Church is to recover the identity and her mission, what would you say about that? I think to 
recover that uh, boldness of her mission, it simply begins with this. It's the unabashed proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the dead. And that, again, is a simple summary for us Lutherans, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone. It's the beating heart of the church's mission. And that uh, small catechism explanation of the third article of the Apostles' Creed, I think, is, is so helpful. It's a great summary not only about for the life of discipleship, but for how the church goes about its mission, recognizing the Holy Spirit through the gospel, calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies. Um, and I think what's interesting, where it ends, this is most certainly true. Now, uh, I think moving forward a little bit, it's a great phrase that admittedly is not something that's readily received by our North American postmodern culture where, where true uh, and truth is all relative. Uh, but David Wells, uh, he's chronicled this uh, where he says, we live in a world where orthodoxies have no place and in which the idea of truth has been abandoned, where worldviews have collapsed and r- religions and spiritualities uh, jostle side by side Uh, and the religious consumer becomes uh, as in the driver's seat. I think this is most certainly true, confession of faith. And the face of all this is very important uh, for our people, of course, um, as it drives us forward in recognizing the mission of the church, that we're unabashed about that, that the mission of the church remains and always will be the unabashed proclamation of Christ the crucified. Very good. And we've, we've spoken about missiology a, a couple times and the identity of the church and the, the connection therein that you can almost find in the DNA itself of the church, her mission. Mark, do you have any thoughts? That's, this is kind of a new territory for us, third article missiology. The, the third article of the Creed of Luther's explanation in particular has always been one of a, a favorite of mine because um, it teaches something so contrary to our North American context, you know, that we are saved only because God gives us faith. I mean, it's totally God's work uh, and it's all through the gospel. So, I, I mean, I, I just think it's it's fascinating yeah. uh, and so succinct, even though it's, I mean, 500 years old, it's, uh, you know, so relevant for today. And that's the beautiful thing about good theology. It's, it's timeless. <laughs> there you go. And it's very uh, prevalent for us in church planting. I mean, when you believe in the Holy Spirit, you believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. So we do find in this also uh, the the mission of the church there. That's uh, that's good. Um, yeah, I think it's. I well, if I could add one more yeah, thing, yeah, just yeah, recognizing sure. the the context of our culture. I think even though some would just say that you know, oftentimes kids say, "When am I going to ever use this?" or they use this just for a a, a catechesis test or confirmation examination, but it really does speak to the nature of the life of faith, but also uh, to the nature of how we go about that work, particularly for uh, the, the life of an unbeliever in a world that's filled with uh, things that Robert George might call expressive individualism, when it's all about the self, or where our culture is one of digital distraction, where uh, you, you've got iPod, YouTube, and We Play, uh, all those different <laughs> elements that distract us 
to a point that uh, the devil is loving that, of course, and if they can, he can keep people distracted, he doesn't have to get them uh, believing false things, even though they certainly are in terms of uh, the idolatries they would have, uh, but that we would go forward with this very powerful Word of God. And so we certainly, I, I want to emphasize, these are urgent times, and urgent times do call for urgent, but I would always use the, the uh, qualifier, urgent but sanctified and salutary action that is rooted in uh, the power of the gospel and speaking that gospel. Uh, and so it, it's, uh, you know, the scripture alone, the grace alone, faith alone, they're not just a dusty Lutheran catchphrase, but for us it's the beating heart of the church's mission, uh, even as we go about finding other uh, other approaches to missiology or, or challenges that might be before us, uh, keeping it simple, I think, helps us and helps the mission of the church move forward. Very good. And I think it is important to remember that it's not a missiology that's, uh, as you said, it's there is the sense of urgency, but it's not based on worry. It's not based on guilt. Uh, that's not, that is not the focus of why we are about mission. What are, what are some other ways that you've found some confusion in terms of missiology? Yeah, the uh, really large in our discussions in the wider church right now is on our culture and the role of culture and how does the church to understand culture and shape its expression of its being, particularly we find it often limited to, not always, but the worship service itself how do we navigate the, the culture and the way that we look and speak within our uh, the Holy Christian Church here in North America in our context and time? Well, there's an old saying that it, he who marries the culture is destined to be an early widower. And uh, what that means is sometimes the, uh, hitching our, our, our horses up to the cultural movements of the time as that which will get us the in into the hearts and minds of people, uh, will sometimes be sorely disappointed. Now, we can uh, observe this, and part of my own studies took a look at this, of in our recent past, has, there, has the church in its expression hitched itself to the cultural movements as an effort to try and get new believers and, and attract people in, and what has happened as a result? Well, I, I, I'm one who likes to track these different movements throughout the recent past. So we know the church growth movement, and it's, it's starting in, in the 70s, and, and it had a methodology and the attractional nature of it. And the promises that it made, if you do this, your church will grow, and you'll continue to carry the mission of the church forward. But of course, w what we saw, it was a, a parallel to the the ending of the modern era in philosophical terms, and it, it didn't produce the results that it promised. And young people became especially disenfranchised with this methodology and were angry. And so then we had, we saw the uh, emergence of what was called the emergent church movement. And that parallels the, the philosophy of the, the postmodern mindset that there are no truths and it's eclectic and it can bring all kinds of elements in there. And so uh, moving through these different movements, there's this confusion that still goes about that says, well, what is the mission of the church? And so uh, there's not only the emergent church, uh, but then there's uh, an idea of the the contextualization movement, and then there's the urban church planning movement, a particular one that's uh, called the 
Metro Spirituality. Now, that's an interesting, was new to me in, in 2012. I began doing a little bit more digging into what does that really mean and what's that about? Um, now, first, I want to make very clear, I'm, I'm not contrarian of every single new movement. I just want to know what it's about and what's at the core of it. And I certainly think there's plenty to be learned from other Christians, uh, but I also, of course, want to be bold in who we are as Lutherans and recognizing the power of the mission of the church that comes in the gospel. But the idea of a metro spirituality that was popular a little bit ago within uh, the uh, broader culture and its origins came in the, in the uh, new age and nature of things. And you can see it in the likes of Gwyneth Paltrow, Angelina Jolie, or Leonardo DiCaprio and promoting it. In a nutshell, it's simply Metro spirituality is the, the yuppie movement, which is combining Eastern mysticism from the sources like Buddhism and Hinduism and Western consumerism. Respecting the environment means buying a hybrid car. Respecting oneself means connecting with one's own inner power. And they're, they're putting this all in the, in the secular nature of metro spirituality together in one single spiritual package. And so you get jamba juice, uh, meditation, kindness, and aromatherapy all rolled into one. Now that's, that's the cultural, uh, secular metro spirituality. But recently in the church, uh, there was uh, church planners that wanted to say, if we could take this cultural uh, event that's going on and adapt it, maybe it could help us in planting churches, particularly in the urban environment. So Sean Banesh was the one who had written a number of books based on this kind of twist on metro spirituality. But he's doing so basically trying to call it the geography of, of church planting. Now, again, I'll, I'll acknowledge there are some things, certainly helpful things that we can learn. But his approach here, I think, gives deference to the, the culture as the predominant power of making disciples, if you be, know the culture better, as opposed to where we might as Lutherans come across as the text of Scripture and the power of the gospel. So uh, his apparent aim, to me at least, it would seem that's to exegete the city and community context more so than the biblical text. Um, so, again, I'm not being contrarian. I think it's very important, and I'll talk more later on about the nature of, we do have to be common sense uh, about contextualization. Uh, a dear friend of mine and colleague were working on another uh, book project regarding that features around common sense contextualization. But the key emphasis, of course, is that we textualize people to the Word of God more so than we do try to contextualize the Word for them. Uh, because if we believe that the power is in the Word of God, and we do have to speak it, of course, in understandable words, in a language they understand. But that's where we say that's common sense. So uh, there's the idea of uh, uh, the metro spirituality uh, that's been going on. And curiously enough, th there's a sociologist as well that has made a, a fascinating observation in his book, uh, To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. Sociologist James Davidson Hunter takes a profound and in-depth look at many of these recent and well-intentioned transformational movements within the church. But from a sociological perspective, I found it fascinating that he notes he found them wanting. Now, he is academic in his assessment but, and tries to be very objective. 
But one of his ultimate conclusions I, I found rather intriguing. He says, Christians must renounce the dominant script of the world and embrace the alternative script that is rooted in the Bible and enacted through the tradition of the church. And for me, I found that quite provocative when it was coming from a sociologist. At minimum, it gives us pause to look at why are we doing in our modern setting uh, for the church, why are we doing what we're doing? And where do we base our confidence in? Um, And I think if it's not first and foremost in the text of scripture, then we might be feeding into that astigmatism uh, again and uh, running into some problems along the way. Yeah, fair enough. I think even biblically speaking, when you see the disciples, when there was preaching to the Jews versus preaching to the Greeks, there was definitely contextualization to give the message of the gospel in a way that is understandable and that connects to the the hearer but at the same time it was the same same truth it's not like you had one truth for the jews and one truth for the the greeks um so absolutely the, the focus yeah. on on uh paying more attention to to the the culture or to the message i think is kind of at the root of what you're telling us then right yes you want to certainly have the balance again i, I don't want to Uh, sidestep the nature and importance of the the context of a culture. And there's great um, missionaries who who give wonderful examples when they go to a foreign land of recognizing the importance of uh, the culture and needing to speak the gospel in ways that will be understood. But I think there is a a careful balance moving forward on the idea that now one of the more uh, present emphases within the broader mission of the church discussions is the contextualization movement, which, though uh, there was much uh, academic writing on this in the 70s as part of the the church uh, growth movement, just as a simple um, statement about the history of the development, but it's been around longer of understanding the context where people are at. Again, this is a common sense approach, Uh, but we want to balance that uh, with being biblical. And again, I think I may have mentioned these at, in our, our other segment together, but there are some very thoughtful thinkers um, about the contextualization movement. Again, Tim Keller and Ed Stetzer um, that have uh, some thoughtful approaches where uh, Ed Stetzer looks at contextualization to, to contend for the faith from Jude 1-3, while also being all things to all people from 1 Corinthians 9-22. Um, But the caution that I I want to encourage is that we don't let that context override and supersede uh, the formation of pastors and the organization of the church. We don't want that to supersede the importance and the uh, primacy of the Word of God. Um, So one of the examples that I, I take a look at is the the nature of our, our cultural conversation of the time. And if we are set on in the church, letting the culture dictate how the church will speak, we run the risk of the culture positioning our theology rather than our theology positioning culture. And we have to be very careful on that so then we don't lose the, uh, the objective nature of speaking and we're not dismissed 
uh, as just one option among many uh, out there in the world because we've subjugated ourselves to culture. So, for example, right now one of the biggest conversations in uh, 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 the American culture is on values. Of course, the, one of the chief values is in our sexual orientation, transgender, same-sex marriage, and um, uh, homosexuality. Well, values, of course, is a, is a new word to the talk of, of morality in terms of recent history, where it always used to be virtue. Virtues are transcendent through time and culture, while value, values are, are malleable to time and culture. But what's interesting, right now in the name of contextualization, there are numerous church bodies that have begun to express the desire to embrace various values of cultural movements. And certainly some of them in a, in a liberal mainstream Christianity, like homosexual culture, they're uh, expressing that value in an effort to contextualize the church and reach out to the community. But of course, we would say, from our perspective on standing on the authority of the Word of God, that that's a, a subjecting God's word to culture and not letting God's word have its say. Uh, and so that's one of the extreme dangers that, uh, that can happen that we want to be careful of and where the, the word of God takes priority. Uh, one, one other example I, I think of here, um, over the years, uh, my wife and I, we have, we have six children. My, and my wife uh, has terrible pregnancies uh, during these where she gets horribly sick and she can't hardly think uh, when she's pregnant. So she'll, she'll find different shows to try and help her get through the really intense nausea moments. I don't know if anyone, either of you or anyone who's, who's listening, has ever seen the show on uh, Say Yes to the Dress. <laughs> That's, it's a, a show about uh, a bride's getting their wedding gowns. And the show is all about the dress and how important the dress is for the bride. And it makes the dress become the central aspect, not, not the marriage, not the wedding, but the dress itself. And it, it gets so extreme uh, to the point that uh, these dresses, one episode we watched, it was $23,000 just for the dress. One bride also said she had to have two dresses, one at 10000 one at 8000 And so my point in doing this is looking at if the church, who is called the Bride of Christ, and that's for a reason, if the church is always looking at how she is dressed and using culture to lead the way, we're going to take our eyes off the groom, who is Christ, and begin focusing more on the dress itself. And that's my one caution when we overemphasize the contextualization movement, where the church might become so preoccupied with how she looks and feels that she takes her eyes off uh, Christ the groom and how he adorns uh, her, the bride, the church, through his word, through the liturgy, through the sacraments. So if if that does happen, that the bride has taken her eyes off of the groom, um, how would you uh, how would you explain how we can reclaim that mission then of the church? I think again, it's it's really quite simple. Um, it doesn't have to be anything where we've got to learn something entirely new. It it starts uh, simple, going back to the word, of course, or simply, do we believe that the resources of the church? are to be found completely in Christ in his word. And uh, the little, the old uh, uh, saying of, of Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
that Christ and his word is at the center. And of course, the expression of that within the uh, the summary of that in the Apostles' Creed and then how that's unpacked, it, it gives us the, the emphasis and the power to lead us forward and lead the church forward in, in reclaiming and keeping her identity and mission as it's rooted in that proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen, and ascended on high. Uh, in this culture that is often called mashed up, um, we need to be bold, I think, in going forward where people are distracted, where they are amusing themselves to death. Uh, we are to be bold in lifting up that power of the gospel. It reminds us, again, I cannot by my own reason or strength. And again, I'm not discounting the importance of contextual common sense uh, as we go about proclaiming that. So uh, the radical task of the church then, I think, uh, is simply at the core getting the message right and proclaiming that confidently of Christ crucified, the shed blood of Christ. And so proclaiming that certainly in the midst of our gathering in the worship setting. Uh, and Luther reminds us uh, about this. That, uh, he says that you or I could never know anything about Christ or believe in him and receive him as Lord unless the community of saints the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting were offered to us and bestowed on our hearts through the preaching of the gospel by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so it keeps that reminder that it's before us. And again, uh, Luther is mindful of that even a seven-year-old knows that the church uh, is the holy believers and the little sheep who hear the voice of their shepherd. And so it's simply keeping on, on that basis right there is what's at the core. But now... Uh, how do we get that? We've got the message right. How do we get the message out? So uh, there, my uh, assessment, Lutherans are have a robust nature of our theology of vocation, where we are at in the midst of our daily stations of life. And as we gather around word and sacrament, uh, that's the place uh, where we have a, a ritually being fed by the liturgy of the word where we're renewed and we're refreshed, where we're forgiven and freed, where we're discipled and then dispersed out into our vocations for daily living, serving and witnessing to Christ. Now, of course, that means we need to be intentional about that. And so that's where it goes back to the discipleship. The life of discipleship for us means that we continue to grow in our faith. And it's, it's a wheel that I would say moves the church, where the body of believers, the Holy Christian Church, uh, gathers around word and sacrament and are fed and nourished in that liturgical worship. But then they are sent out into their vocations. Uh, so you think of a circle here, sent out into the vocations, and then in their vocations, they are taking the opportunity and the trusted relationships that they have developed to intentionally share the faith. And so if you think of it as a circle, that's a wheel that's moving the church then out into the world where they're living the faith in the world, sharing the faith. And so it goes out into the world rather than trying to attract people in through some kind of form of entertainment or attractional model where it's the place we gather to be renewed and discipled and then sent out again, dispersed into our vocations uh, to share that faith. Uh, so for me, it uh, seems uh, simple uh, to try and keep that at the core of our faith. And 
um, when we look at it, the more God-centered we are, maybe the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we are in life, the more active we'll become in our faith. And then being regularly discipled makes regular disciples. And we become more cognizant of those around us who need to hear the gospel. And so even it brings more fervor to when we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. Uh, again, Luther's explanation, the small catechism, uh, brings us deeper into it and helps us mindful, be mindful that God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us his Holy Spirit so that by his grace we believe his holy word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. And so it comes all the way, again, full circle back to the centrality of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our life, uh, leading us forward, not by our own reason or strength, but as the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, through Christ who gives us strength. Very good. Thank you so much. Uh, Mark, any last-minute thoughts about this idea of the context and the mission of the church? Well, just uh, kind of a question. I really like uh, how you termed it, common sense contextuality. So, do you have any sort of markers when one is straying from common sense and starting into compromise? What would that look like? How can a person recognize that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, what my colleague and I are trying to work out as we consider writing on this. So we try and take a look at it in, in a couple elements, looking at first the, the, the church as she gathers together for word and sacrament. What does that look like? What does that sound like? But then also uh, the, the body of believers as they live out their life in their daily vocations. So if uh, the markers might be, and we'll have to I'll give some more, it's a good question for me to give some more thought in depth to, to be more specific on, but the markers might be uh, that if uh, in a worship setting or in our daily life, uh, an outsider can't tell anything different from us and the regular culture, uh, the secular culture, that Christ isn't uh, present at the center, uh, then something isn't quite aligned with the nature of either the, the centrality of uh, the worship setting or uh, the centrality of the life of a disciple. Um, and again, that's not saying that every second of every day, every moment, wherever you're at, you're saying, do you believe in Jesus? I believe in Jesus and <laughs> going about things. But it's to be uh, mindful of why you're there and why you're serving uh, and who you are in Christ. And likewise, uh, for the word and sacrament uh, worship services, what's the central point of that? So my thought might be on worship services, if they become uh more attractional in nature that says we we want to try to use the church services or some element within them to attract uh, the people of culture with something from the culture, popular culture itself, uh, and use that as the impetus for trying to make disciples, then we might be uh, starting to go down some a slippery slope. Yep, thank you. Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for your time. I, I do uh, appreciate uh, this discussion, especially as it relates to being faithful to the mission, um, having a right understanding of the role of missiology along with the culture that we find ourselves in. It's certainly a much different scenario than it has been in decades. Uh, I think that has 
created some fears. I mean, when you talked about the the wheel moving, uh, I think we have this emphasis on making disciples, and I have to say in church planting, uh, the wheel might be stuck in the mud a little bit sometimes. <laughs> so sure. we, we, we certainly want to encourage, uh, you know, a right understanding of our missiology and the culture we find ourselves in. But at the same time, um, you know, pray, pray to God that we can keep the, the wheel churning and that we will continue uh, to be about his mission and about the Great Commission and about reaching the lost, uh, especially as it relates to uh, starting new missions in Mission Field USA. So, Dr. Woodford, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate your conversation. Um, any any plugs you want to put in there? I know you've been working on quite a few things lately. Oh, well, no, it's been, it's been great to be with you. Uh, again, I commend you and your work and uh, we're certainly uh, about that here, trying to reach out and continue on. Um, did my, my colleague and I also just uh, finished up another book, too, on helping uh, pastors think through this uh, as the leadership uh, book just out from Lexham Press right now called Church Leadership and Strategy uh, for the Care of Souls uh, by Hal Sinkbell and myself. So that gives another level of uh, things we've been talking about. But now how do we think about uh, a applying this and, and being leaders within the local congregation uh, and leading the church forward, uh, keeping the means of grace at the center, but also um, giving care to souls, both lost and found. There you go. Very good. It's all, it's all about caring for the, the sheep, the lost sheep, and also to continue to care for those uh, in your flock. So thank you so much, Dr. Woodford, for your time. Thank you, Mark, for being with us again, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Mission Field USA podcast for church planting. Visit lcms.org slash church planting for other resources and information to share your ideas and to contact us. The Mission Field USA podcast is a production of the Office of National Mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in partnership with KFUO Radio. The Lord be with you.